Welcome to Pop Culture Rx, where we sit down with a medical expert and talk through various health-related topics circulating in today's media. We've got you covered. An unexpected health condition can happen to anyone at any time, celebrity or not. In our discussions, you'll hear from a variety of professionals sharing insight and advice on these topical conditions. Today we're talking about Hallmark Channel host and former All My Children soap star Cameron Matheson, who recently revealed uh, his kidney cancer prognosis. And today I'm talking with Dr. Michael Stifelman. He is the chair and professor of urology at the Hackensack Bridian Health Seton Hall Medical School. He's also the director of robotic surgery for Hackensack Bridian Health and he specializes in kidney cancer. So thank you so much, Dr. Stifelman, for having us today. Thank you, Kylie. I'm really happy to be here. So before we get, you know, jump into kidney cancer and kidneys as a whole, I wanted to talk to you first about why you decided to become a doctor. What made you choose, you know, medicine? So I was actually going down the path of being a oceanographer. Wow. And uh, to be tr- really frank, I was going to be an oceanographer. I was studying oceanography at University of Massachusetts. And my dad came up one day, kind of unannounced, and took me for a drive. And he said, hey, I'm really excited that you like this, but you know, take a look around. And are you going to be able to live the sort of lifestyle that you think you want to live, be an oceanographer? And I'm like, I don't know. And he says, <laughs> I'm not really sure either. So why don't you spend a summer working with a really good friend of mine who's a cardiothoracic surgeon down at uh, Newark Beth Israel, and maybe see if you like being a doctor. And I said, okay, I'll do that. And I spent a summer with a guy named Mark Hotchberg uh, at Newark Beth Israel, had an internship for seven other students who were college students, and I fell in love with medicine. I really realized that this was a field that I could combine, Mm -hmm. like all of my passions, you know, all my interest in kind of the story of life and you know how things work together Uh, i really enjoyed being able to help people and relate to people uh, working in a team and sort of all coalesced and i felt this would be a really cool job and that's how i ended up being a doctor so that physician was a cardiothoracic surgeon and you are not a cardiothoracic not a cardiothoracic surgeon at all so what made you jump into urology um people really okay. is what got me into urology. I knew I wanted to do surgery, okay? Uh, that was clear from the beginning. I started, you know, just from being in college and seeing what they did, I thought it was just so cool and amazing and just every day was, you know, a different challenge and I realized early on I wanted to do that. And so when you're in medical school, you get to sort of, you not know, sort of, you rotate through all these different areas of specialty. And I went to the cardiothoracic team, I went to the general surgery team, I went to the transplant team, I went to all these surgical subspecialties, and I realized that everyone was miserable. Like really (laughs) not happy people. And I did not want to be around people that weren't happy. And then I found urologists, and they were like so cool. The men and women of urology, they were just fun. They did, you know, they did really amazing surgery. Some of it was really straightforward. Some of it was the most complex stuff you could imagine. But at the end of the day, they all were like, let's go out for a drink. Let's go hang out. Let's <laughs> talk about things, you know, like normal people. And they seemed super happy. I said, these are the people I want to hang out with. And that's Very how I got cool. into urology. I think that's like for everyone in life. You want to work where people are happy and yeah. you make you happy and make you better. Absolutely. 
All right, so let's jump into this. So after he found out about his prognosis, Cameron underwent partial nephrectomy surgery. What is that? That's a big load of words, right? Partial yes. nephrectomy surgery. Um, to break it down really simple is they just wedged out a piece of the kidney where the cancer was. Okay. And so if you think of the kidney like a bean, mm -hmm. um, you literally just cut out the piece of that kidney where the tumor is. You take a little extra tissue of normal tissue around it. We call that a margin uh, or it, it safety zone just to yeah. make sure you get it all out. And now you have this wedge uh, in the kidney and you got to close up all the arteries and the veins and the... Sometimes you enter what's called the collecting system where the urine is sort of stored in the kidney. Close it all up nice and tight, make it watertight, and then so it doesn't bleed. So a partial nephrectomy is a fancy word for uh, excising a, or that's another fancy word. So partial nephrectomy <laughs> is a fancy word for cutting out a piece of the kidney. So can't you live with one kidney? Why wouldn't they just take yeah. the infected kidney out? Great. You know, that's a really awesome question. And that is something we spent like so much time sort of figuring out. Because when I started my journey back in 1999, that's exactly what we would do. Like mm -hmm. we would take out kidneys all the time because it's like, hey, you could live with two kidneys. You got one. You got two. You can live with one just fine. We do yeah. it all the time for kidney transplant patients. We take out people's kidneys and give them to their loved ones all the time. But what we've kind of realized is that those are different populations of people, right? People who are donating their kidneys to their loved ones are healthy. They're young. They don't have medical problems. They don't have diabetes. They don't have high blood pressure. They don't have all these other problems. Where people who are getting kidney cancer, not necessarily Christensen, who we'll talk about later, but most of them are kind of older and have these medical problems. And we've realized that if we could save the kidney, if we could leave some of that kidney behind or most of that kidney behind, that their risk of developing other kidney problems, like we call kidney, chronic kidney disease, or other problems like heart disease or high blood pressure, those sort of things are decreased. So we realize that when you can save the kidney, it's always a better thing. Okay. And then there's also sort of the theoretical benefit, right? So if I, take, if I save your kidney, and all of a sudden you get in a car accident, you lose the good kidney, well, it's okay. I, I kind of saved the other part of the kidney, so you don't have to go on dialysis. You don't have any big issues. That's but true. if I take out your whole kidney, now you're left with one, and you're skiing or you're bungee jumping or you're racing your car or whatever you're doing, you get into an accident and you lose that kidney, then we have a problem. So uh, when I explain patients about why I save kidneys, I tell them, A, there's a lot of really good data that says by saving your kidney, I can help you in terms of preventing kidney disease or heart disease or stroke in the future. But more importantly, or just as important, it's kind of an insurance policy. <laughs> Having two is better than one. Absolutely. Even if it's one and a half. Even if it's one and a half. So you mentioned something about age. And Cameron Matheson is only 50 years old. Yeah. He's pretty young to to have this kind of illness. What is that a normal thing or you know, do you mostly see patients that are older? So, you know, um, we treat kidney cancer here a lot uh, here at Hackensack uh, University Medical Center. And we probably not probably we have the largest kidney cancer surgery experience of anyone in New Jersey wow. and probably the top two in the entire metro area. It's just an area of our expertise and a lot of people come here for with very complex kidney disease and people who really need a partial nephrectomy. So 
we see all walks of life. I've seen it as young as 19. Wow. And I've seen them as old as 90. So, but when you talk about like, you know, that bell curve, you know, where mm-hmm. most people are, it's mostly in the 60s and 70 year olds. Okay. It's very rarely. And in fact, when we find patients who had kidney cancer that are 50 or younger, mm-hmm. we actually send them for genetic testing. Wow. Because it is rare to have it at such a young age. And so we sort of want to know, hey, why did you get that at such a young age? Uh, it's so unusual. Is there some gene that is making you more prone to that happening? We want to look for that. Yeah, because when Cameron learned about his diagnosis, he said he he learned about it after dealing with stomach problems and that the the doctors believe that the tumor was in his body for a minimum of 10 years, but that he had such a healthy lifestyle that he kept it from growing or spreading. Mm-hmm. Um, is that normal or is it more normal to like feel the symptoms and right away know that someone has cancer? So in this type of cancer, kidney cancer, 95% of the tumors that we find are completely incidental. Like, you know, someone comes in with, oh, I think I got a gallbladder problem. They get an ultrasound. We find a tumor on their left side. Or someone comes in and they saw something on the colonoscopy, so they got a CAT scan. We find a tumor on the right side. So, so many times we find that uh, 95% of the time we find it incidentally. Like, no symptoms at all. No, And the tip, the symptoms that we used to see 30, 40 years ago was blood in the urine or pain in the area where the kidney was or like a bulge because the tumor got so big. But because we have such sophisticated imaging and because doctors use this imaging all the time now to help diagnose people with kind of other sort of ailments like stomach problems or gallbladder problems or GI problems, we're doing a lot more imaging. And because of that, we're finding these tumors much earlier than we would have, say, 30 or 40 years ago. And that's what happened to Cameron. I mean, Cameron was, they, he had no symptoms of kidney cancer. Yeah. He was looking for a stomach problem. And all of a sudden, an area completely away from the stomach, and in fact, on the other side of the body, is where they found the tumor. So this was what we call an incidental finding, and uh, which is really, really common. So in terms of the length it was there for, it's a little harder to say. I mean, 10 years, that's kind of a stretch. Yeah, it seems um, like a long time. It does. And again, I, we don't know, and I don't certainly know the size of the tumor, though the person that took out the tumor is a really good friend of mine. Oh, wow. Who, yeah, great guy, Dr. Inda Bergil, um, one of the pioneers in partial nephrectomy surgery and minimally invasive partial nephrectomy surgery. And I can feel really confident say, um, if I had to get a piece of my kidney removed, I would go to Dr. Gill. He's okay. a great, great guy. Um, and he's taught me a lot throughout the years as well. So, but it's hard to tell because we don't know how big the tumor was and yeah. those sort of things. So typically that grows about six millimeters a year, which is like a quarter of an inch a year, roughly. Okay. So, you know, if it's four or five centimeters, yeah, that probably took about six or, you know, 10 years to grow if it's two centimeter tumor probably took three or four years but it definitely has been there for a while yeah like it just didn't pop up yeah it didn't Uh, just happen overnight exactly so it's definitely been there for a while was it there for five years or ten years doesn't really uh matter i would argue um but certainly it's been there for more than two or three so is it normal for kidney cancer to be kind of less aggressive 
per se, since, you know, it's been in the body for 10 years that it's, I wouldn't consider it to be as aggressive as prostate cancer or something yeah. a little more intense. You know, the aggressiveness of the tumor really depends on a lot of different factors. And so it's a little hard to say just based on size, mm -hmm. what the aggressiveness is. So number one is size is super important. And that is actually one of the big driving factors that tells me how aggressive a cancer is. So once we hit about that four centimeter mark, then we start saying, ooh, you know, there you have a potential for this thing to start spreading. That's number one. But also important is what type of kid kidney cancer it is. So there are actually lots of different types. There's, you know, believe it or not, there's about 30 different types of kidney cancers. Wow. Yeah. There's clear cell, there's chromophobe, there's sarcomatoid, there's papillary, there's papillary type 1, there's papillary type 2, there's mixed. The list goes on and on. I feel like every year they keep adding to it. <laughs> so depending upon what that cell type is, you know, that origin of the tumor also really dictates how bad the cancer is. So like, for example, if you had a chromophobe kidney cancer, that's super cool. Like you're going to do really well and zero issues, especially if it's less than four centimeters. Whereas if you have a papillary type two tumor, that's a little more aggressive. That can come back more commonly. That can actually come back in the other kidney. So that's really important. And the last thing we do is we look under the microscope and then we look to see what the cells type is and also how aggressive each of the cells are. And the more, the term is a fancy word, de-differentiated, mm -hmm. but it basically means the more it doesn't look like a normal cell, the more aggressive it can be. So we sort of take all that information together, how big it is, what the stage is, like how deep did it go into the kidney and did it invade any of the blood vessels or the lymphatics, what this actual cell type was out of the different 40 there could be, and what looks under the microscope, kind of put all that stuff together to figure out, okay, what's the likelihood of it spreading in the future or coming back? Yeah, and now that, you know, he had this partial nephrectomy, so what does his life look like, like his recovery road look like? Is he going to be able to do whatever he wants? Is he going to be able to drink coffee again? Is well, it? I don't know about you, but when you told me I was going to go do this, I actually looked him up when yeah. I went online. This dude got like two days after surgery, had his shirt off, yeah, which I think he does all the time. He does, and he was totally fired up. He's like, "Check me out! Check out my incisions!" So he's going to have a perfectly normal life. He's going to run. He's going to work out again. He's going to have that crazy sick body. He's going to do all those things he's always done. And he, and honestly, within four to six weeks after the surgery, he's not going to even know he had the surgery. Wow. That's how quick the recovery is using robotics. Wow. And so talk to me a little bit about that. What is the plus to robotic surgery there? So I think one of the pluses is what Christensen keeps talking about. And one day, his shirt's off and he's walking around feeling great. You know, that's number one. So, you know, the fact that you can do something minimally invasively with just a few small holes versus a large incision, which literally cuts through the muscles that help you breathe, right there is a huge win. So the trauma to the body, the amount of pain it causes, um, the dysfunction, you know, that it causes by not cutting through the muscle or the mm -hmm. lack of that is super um i would say i would argue favors robotics tremendously minimally invasively the other sort of uh things we've learned is that there's less blood loss with robotics there's going to bleed less you could see so much better using robotics than you yeah. can doing through an open incision you can suture with much more accuracy 
and with much better dexterity than you could through like this open incision where you're putting these big sutures down with big needle drivers versus here the ends of the instruments literally move just like your hand and you get this 3d view so from a surgeon standpoint you can be a lot more meticulous you can be a lot more careful um, and precise um, you can see better there's less blood loss i mean it, you can use technology called uh, near-infrared fluorescence imaging to like flip the light to near-infrared light and use chemicals to help define where the borders of the tumor are. I mean, there's so many amazing pieces of technology that have transformed the way we treat it that you can use robotically versus sort of the old-fashioned way was I'm going to make an incision, which is measures anywhere between 8 and 12 inches. <laughs> I'm going to cut that patient's musculature, which is three layers of muscles, by the way. I'm going to spread it open with this retractor, which is going to cause its own trauma. And I'm going to look deep into a hole to get to the area I want to work with. So it's for that reason that the vast majority of surgeons are now switching over to robotics. Yeah, and it sounds like he, I mean, you, you basically just said he's going to feel absolutely yeah. fine in the next four to six yeah. weeks. Absolutely. Now, I'm just going to add one thing about robotics. So, and so sure. and I, when I saw this uh, on Twitter yeah. and actually posted on Twitter regarding this, I noticed that he did uh, what we call a multi port robot okay so a multi-port robot if you think about it, it's exactly what it sounds like each of the instruments that you insert into the patient goes through a different hole okay. right and so with robotics we put a camera in so that's hole number one then we put usually some instrument in the that you would control with your right hand usually a scissor that's hole number two then you put another instrument to help control bleeding and retraction which you control with your left hand that's you know hole number three then you put in a, another instrument to help you with traction. That's your fourth arm, we call it, and that's hole number four. And then you put an assistant in, that's hole number five. So if you look at any of the recent pictures that Christensen had, he had actually six holes. So he had okay. five holes for the ones we discussed, and he had an extra hole to help move the liver out of the way. And there's only 20 of these in the entire world. Wow. Is single port robotic surgery. Okay, so what single port robotic surgery is, all those same instruments that I discussed that had to go through different holes yeah. in the body, you just make one incision through wow. the belly button and they all come out through your belly button. So it is possible, and again, I don't know, it's not for everybody, we don't use this for every kidney tumor. There are certain ones that are really good for it. There's other ones we'd always wanna use a multi-port, so I'm not saying Christensen should have had it or could have had it. But in patients who are amenable to that, they don't, ha they don't have any incisions. Zero. Yeah, because go, the belly button covers it. Exactly. So you want to talk about, you know, it, it's basically scarless. It's yeah. pretty amazing. And that's some of the advances uh, that Hackensack University Medical Center is doing. Did Cameron have scarring on his stomach? Yeah. Yes, right? Yeah, yeah. So I don't have my phone on me. Oh, it's fine. Um, but yeah, no, he has six scars. Yeah. He has six small incisions. Each incision um, is about this, about a quarter of an inch, so really small, and it yeah. will heal beautifully. Um, and, but he had five, or excuse me, six six small incisions on his abdomen, on his stomach area, that was you that, that were created to place the robotic instruments through. So he didn't have single port. He did not. Okay. All right. Just making sure. But if sure he I did, understood. it would be really cool because you would take yes. your shirt off, and you would have no idea that he had surgery. 
I have two more questions for you before I let you go. So how can we keep our kidneys healthy? So I'm a healthy young woman. How can I continue to keep my kidneys healthy? You don't want to like eat a lot of protein and not drink a lot of fluids and have your urine be really dark because that puts extra work on your kidneys. So you want to keep yourself sort of flushed out, right? You yeah. want to drink at least, I tell patients, one and a half to two liters of fluid a day. Okay. Number two is you want to may be medically healthy, right? You don't want to develop high blood pressure. You don't want to develop diabetes. You don't want to develop obesity. You don't want to develop high sugars. You don't want to develop other medical problems that can affect your kidneys. So again, those things do. High cholesterol, high triglycerides, which is too much fat, obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure. All those sort of things can have a negative effect on the kidney. Um, so I think those are the take-home messages on ways to keep the kidney healthy. And one of my last questions I have for you is I've always heard this, maybe it's a myth, of that I, I don't know if it's Tylenol or ibuprofen that goes through your kidneys and are bad for your kidneys. So it's good we're talking about this because Tylenol actually goes through the liver. So I hear that yes. all the time. And actually, people ask me, oh, can I have a cocktail when I go home after this? I'm like, no problem. Like, oh, I thought that went through your kidney. Actually, that's metabolized. That's sort of broken down the liver. So Tylenol and alcohol broken down the liver. Ibuprofen, however, is broken down the kidney in moderation. You know, one, one or two pills when needed, not every day, not, you know, a thousand milligrams a day, but when needed, when you don't have on the already existing kidney problem, it's no issue at all, okay? But if you take it, you know, regularly, not with the prescription of a physician that's monitoring you and or you have significant kidney problems to start with, it could, be, it could become dangerous. And so that's why it's really important to speak with your doctor if you're requiring this sort of medication on a regular basis. Okay. Anything else you'd like to add to today's podcast? Um, anything else I want to add to today's podcast? So I am super proud of the multidisciplinary approach, which means that we have a lot of different medical teams working together in the treatment of kidney cancer here at Hackensack University Medical Center. We work with special urologic oncologists, that means medical doctors that deal with cancer. We have some of the best surgeons in the world who are able to manage the most complex kidney cancers, uh, and many of those with just one incision through your belly button. We have incredible radiologists that use lots of different imaging techniques to determine what type of tumors there are beforehand and what's the best way to approach them. And every single week we present these patients to each other to make sure that every patient gets the best, most specialized care possible. And it's for that reason that we have one of the largest programs in the New York area and the largest kidney cancer program in all of New Jersey. And I'm really proud of that and to be a part of that. Awesome. Well, you should be really proud of that. That sounds like something to be incredibly proud of. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having us today. Thank you, Kylie. It was really nice meeting you guys. Nice to meet you. The material provided through this Health You podcast is intended to be used as general information only and should not replace the advice of your physician. Always consult your physician for individual care.